Okay, this is the kind of context that I like. It's going to be fun. Um, you can keep talking. I've got to get my notes open here, find where I am. All right, um, this, I, this is going to be fun for me, and I hope uh, it'll be encouraging to you as we talk about basically this, what it is, the prolegomenon to expository preaching. A prolegomenon means what you need to believe if you're going to do expository preaching, if you're going to commit your life to uh, what I talked about is a life of what your pastor does is Lectio Continua, preaching sequentially through God's Word. And I, <clears throat> I, I did that for my whole uh, ministry, which means I never did get all the way through God's Word. You know, I, I did a whole lot of the New Testament, but uh, um, this, is, this is what sustained me. You could also say it's a bibliology, a doctrine of the Bible for preaching God's Word. And um, let me just pray as we start here. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, this next hour would be uh, uh, heartening and scintillating uh, for the people that are here. I pray that uh, for uh, many it would uh, put their roots down to the fact that the Bible has to be preached from the pulpit not preached about, but preached. And so I pray, God, that uh, you'll help me to communicate this, to say what I need to say, to not say what I don't need to say, and to, to have a great spirit of communication and be heart, that it would be heartening and encouragement to the body of Christ here and others that may be visiting, other pastors perhaps. I know no one here, uh, which gives me great liberation, Lord. So let me... Just say what you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's really the truth. <laughs> um, that, uh, I gave you a little, a little bit of my history, but uh, uh, exposition's been the dominating passion of my life since the 1960s. I, uh, I became convinced of biblical exposition when I was just a teenager, some of the things that I read. I, uh, I went to seminary. Uh, at Talbot Seminary with John MacArthur, so we had the same training, the same bibliology, the same doctrine of the Word. So the belief that um, that the way you preach is with you here, the Bible here, and the people out there, not the Bible back here, and you here, and the people out there. We don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ. You know, you preach the Word of God, and the main thing is to be the main thing. And so it was, it was a dominating passion of mine uh, during the 60s, uh, then it was my uh, my Bible with post-it notes all over it, and I we didn't use chairs in the 60s, so it would be like 50, 60 students sitting around a room like this, me sitting on the floor with my rabbit skin covered Bible or whatever I happened to be using that time, opening the Word of God. But I always did believe that I had to teach the Word of God, so that that was my passion, and then it was uh, the center of my ministry. Uh, during the 70s, and I exchanged my uh, kind of 60s gear. This is really interesting for anybody that knows me. For a uh, Hawaiian shirt and uh, you know shorts, not not shorts on Sunday morning, but much more uh, Calvary sh- Chapel chic, you know, during during uh, the 70s. I actually did wear a tie on Sunday morning though, but. Uh, uh, and then when I got to college church, it was the uh, buttoned-down uh, Midwestern ambience of kind of a formal, traditional church. So that's, that was the context that I preached in then. And the students used to say, all you guys sitting up there look like you're part of the firm. That's what you look like to us. And so, but but in, in the middle of all that, uh, expository preaching is, has been my passion. And... Uh, I have a big collection of homiletical books. I've done some research on homiletical books. Uh, started uh, preaching workshops at college church, uh, gosh, close to 20 years ago now, uh, where we'd have annual preaching workshops on how to do biblical exposition and bring people in. And that's, out of that came the Simeon Trust, which does workshops around the country on how to do biblical exposition. And I, and I have always just... One of the most exciting things to me has been the, t- the, t- uh, the time to study the Word of God. I felt like in the ministry, things may be crazy, but and I said it to the pastor, 
the time of great sanity is my 20 hours in my study looking at ultimate sanity in the Word of God, getting prepared to preach to the people and the surprises that you would get. I calculated one time uh, during my 27 years at college church how much time I spent in the study. And for my preparations for the week, I always averaged about 20 hours. You've got everything to do. You know, got Sunday morning, you've got other things to do, about 20 hours. Uh, that means I preached about uh, 11 or 1,200 fresh expositions during my time at College Church. Multiply that by 20 hours, and you've got about 24,000 hours in those uh, in that time devoted to study the Word of God. And uh, you can say, "Is that all you did?" <laughs> well, if you're if you're in the ministry, that's just part of your week. And I have to say, when I include Sunday. I don't think in those 27 years I ever worked less than 60 hours a week because I, I had one day off and then I worked and I had night meetings and I had counseling and I had that and I had Sunday. And believe me, just so you all know, so you, for your pastor, Sunday is Sunday. <laughs> yeah, right. Sunday is the day that you come home from church. You're so tired. You, you sign your resignation and put it out and then tear it up Monday morning. I mean, that's how you, I mean, you just get exhausted on the Lord's day. It's not a day of rest. Please understand that. And the hardest work that he does is that work in the pulpit on Sunday morning. Um, you know, most people, if they had to do that, would rather die. In fact, it's next to death, it's the greatest fear that American people have, speaking publicly. So when my life has been devoted to this, that's why... The contemporary slide toward what I call disexposition is such a concern to me. Now, you won't find it in the dictionary. It's, it's a word I made up. And then I first spelled it D-I-S-E-X-P-O-S. And I even got better. I've changed it to D-Y-S-E-X-P-O-S-I-T. The dysfunctional disexposition and if you really want to know what it is, if you're just sitting here going, what is it we're talking about? Just say exposition dist, and that'll do it. And you've all experienced it as a listener, though you may not have termed it that, didn't have the vocabulary for it. So you, you say you, you uh, visit a church, you're in another state, church says Bible on the front of it, and you go, okay, I'm going to go there for Sunday morning. You go in, they have whatever their style of worship is, and then... The text is announced, perhaps read. If it's read, it's rich and promising. You settle back with your Bible open, ready for a great meal on Sunday morning, only to find that the text is departed from, never to be returned to. You've experienced that sometimes. And that's disexposition, which means Sunday indigestion. Um, on other occasions, you've experienced disexposition where no matter where the preacher opens the Bible, whether it's in the wisdom literature, whether it's in the historical documents, whether it's in the opening part of the Torah, uh, whether it's in the prophets, whether it's in uh, Mark, whether it's in the... I mean, wherever it is, wherever it's, it's open to, that the, the preacher encrusts the text with a series of his favorite texts, you know, so that no matter where it's preached from, it always comes out sounding the same. I don't know if you, if you get what I'm talking about. A lot of people call it gospel preaching. So you always end up with the same. Instead of Christ and all the scriptures of the gospel, it is a series of gospel tracts which insulates you to the text. So no matter where you're preaching... It sounds the same. And when you listen to that kind of stuff week after week, you get brain dead because you can't remember anything that was said. Um, and then there's a type of disexposition that prades itself as exposition, which I would call putative exposition, seeming exposition, which the text is referred to. And it's not departed from, but there is no rigor there is no engagement with the text in its context. 
There's no understanding really of what that book is all about, how that text fits into the book, what what the, what they're doing, and and uh, you get uh, sort of what I call an ersatz exposition. You know what ersatz coffee is? That's coffee that really isn't coffee. It's pretend coffee. That's Nescafe instead of Starbucks, if you want to know what it is. And so you get that, and you get a bunch of uh, well-traveled bromides. And it can take all kinds of form. Disexposition, exposition, dist. Um, I'll give you uh, at least five words that you might want to jot down. Oh, you don't have to because this is going to be, you can pick it up on tape. But the words are decontext, that's D-context, decontext, lensed, L-E-N-S-E-D, moralized, doctrinalized, and silenced, silenced, all those ED words, decontext, lens, moralized, doctrinalized, silenced, and maybe I can give you another one or two. Now, decontext, that's where scripture is often wrenched from its context and mistakenly and grievously misapplied. Like the preacher who honestly used a Revelation 11.10 as a Christmas text. Here it is. And they that dwell on the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another. Uh, They neglected to realize the eschatological nuance of this of people sending gifts to one another because the two prophets that had been tormented on the earth had been put to death. You know, have yourself a very Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> or uh, my, my son saw this. Now, this, this actually wasn't, but it was a misuse of a text, and I'm sure that there's been a sermon preached a Christmas text on this. He was uh, driving out of Spokane. He went out to Coeur d'Alene. There was a Christian bookstore in Coeur d'Alene, and it had up on its advertisement, its marquee on the outside, Matthew 2.8. When you have found him, bring me word, too, so I, too, may come and worship him. (laughs) And put the tagline, which is Herod. (laughs) All right. Well, I think you get get the whole point about that, you know, where it's just ripped out of its context and used as a pretext for anything you want to say. That's disexposition. Another is a little more subtle, and that's where the text is viewed through a favorite lens of the preacher. Uh, It could be a psychological lens. Uh, It could be a political lens. It could be a materialistic lens um, or a chauvinistic lens or a domestic lens. So, say if it's a domestic lens or a political lens, No matter what the text the preacher began with, the sermon always ends up on the home, if it's domestic lens, or the flag, if it's a political lens. And and I can think of a great Presbyterian divine uh, who's now gone to be with the Lord, and uh, he created evangelism explosion. But when I heard him at the end of his career, he'd wrapped himself in the American flag, and that's basically all you heard. And so I, I'm thinking, actually, of a great man in a lot of ways, but I always felt like, oh, boy, you know, the, his lens had overtaken what he did. And here the, the uh, therapeutic or psychologized lens is especially pernicious because the hearer may not recognize the psychological subtext as being read in the text. And you'll often hear this today when instead of talking to sin, they're talking about uh, brokenness and lack of wholeness and well-being and all those kinds of therapeutic words which just kind of remove you from the biblical anthropology and what is, is being done there. So uh, I, think, I think you get the idea what I'm talking about. Here's the deal is that we all have lenses, 
I have lenses. So it's not like I'm arrogating myself above it, but I am talking about the danger of preaching through a lens. Okay? Which then changes the scripture. And then the, the next heading where the text is subjected to moralizing. For example, Paul's words in Philippians 3.13, those uh, five words, this one thing I do, is pulled out and it's taken to teach the importance of having goals and prioritizing them. Thus, the preacher preaches on goal setting without... And, and so he's, he basically says, this one thing I do. And so he says, here's what you got to do if you're going to be wise. I mean, you got to pr- prioritize. The Bible tells us we have to prioritize. And so what you need to do is take the 10 most important things you have to do, prioritize them 1 to 10, and do number one, this one thing I do. And when you're done with that, go to the second one, this one thing I do. Well, you can get the rhetoric ringing off the walls and you can be sweating you can be really preaching about this one thing I do and never reference Paul's magnificent goal forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus so the scripture is moralized and thereby trivialized and that's that is easily done. Um, and then doctrinalized, that's where the scriptures organized into an array of proof texts to promote the doctrinal preferences of the preacher. And believe me, I believe in systematics. I believe in dogmatics. I, I, those things are great uh, help. They save me from error. But to take an array of texts and put them together is synthetic because you're not preaching as Calvin would say, the bare word of God, the verbum nudum, the word of God. See what I'm saying? And then, silenced, that's where the preacher preaches on the scripture, silences gaps in God's word. Now, I did that a little bit today when I'd say you have to understand that it doesn't say Mary was disheveled, does it? Or Martha was disheveled, that she was dirty. I mean, so I, but I did look in the background and say that's the way she had to be. So, you know, that, that's, that's kind of going between the lines, preaching from the silences. But that's where the preacher really does take advantage of the silence, the gaps in God's words. So you come to Christmas, and the preacher says, Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Mary felt about this, the Virgin Mary. But we may be sure that she felt, and therefore we ought. Well, you know, I have some sympathy to this. I mean, when you've preached 41 years of Christmas sermons, you have preached on every text that you can possibly preach from every angle, you know. And, uh, uh, but, uh, when you preach from the gaps, I've actually, and I'd like to be a fly on, the ear of one of the oxen or the donkeys watching the whole thing. I actually heard of a sermon that was preached from the perspective of the lowing oxen. So you got an ox's point of view of the incarnation. I don't think it would be highly intelligent, but <laughs> you can do a whole lot with that, you know. You can have a great sermon, advertise it in the newspaper, you know. Uh, the loin oxen on the incarnation. Uh, <laughs> a lot of bull. A lot of bull. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the most common type of disexposition comes from what I call the homiletics of consensus. And that is where the preacher takes his determines his congregation's needs from the pollster's analysis of felt needs. So he goes to Gallup and says, what are the felt needs? Or, he, or if he's uh, you know, got a college education, he goes to Maslow's hierarchy and says, I'll, I'll work through Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, 
And I, and I say that your biblical exposition, when you do it, needs to be informed by the needs of your people. You need to know where they are. You need to know what they're doing. You need to know what the stresses are. You need to read the newspapers. You need to read the magazine. You need to watch the news. You need to watch football, especially. But, I mean, you need to know what's going on in culture. But the problem with preaching to felt needs is that very often people's perceived needs are not their deepest needs. I rather doubt that any man on the street knows that one of his deepest needs is to understand how sinful he is and that Romans 1 would be a great palliative for the man on the street if they understood their anthropology and their sinfulness and depravity. But they don't know that. And their congregation doesn't know it. The people need to have that preached to them today. And you can go on with this. William Willimon... Uh, who's not particularly a conservative, who was dean of the chapel at Duke University, uh, wrote an article entitled, Been There, Been That. Now I think he's the Methodist Bishop of Birmingham. And in it, Williman asked rhetorically, this is very, uh, talk about sticking your eye, finger in the eye of, of uh, he says, do you know how disillusioning it has been for me to realize that many of these self-proclaimed biblical preachers now sound more like liberal mainliners than liberal mainliners. At the very time, those of us in the mainline, mainline denomination, old line, sidelined, were repenting of our pop psychological pap and rediscovering the joy of biblical discipline, biblical preaching, these biblical preachers were becoming user-friendly and inclusive, taking their homiletical cues from the felt needs of us boomers and busters rather than excruciating demands of the Bible. He says, I know how they do this. After all, we mainline liberals played this game before the conservative evangelical and reformed orthodox got there. Ouch. Then a few paragraphs later, after warning against allowing the world to set our homiletical agenda, he concludes the section saying, the psychology of the gospel Reducing salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby is our chief means of perverting the biblical text. So I I just want to say that I I get around the country and there are all kinds of churches that have Bible in their name or Baptist in their name or this, and they are not preaching the word. It's disexposition. Um, you know, just maybe a slight reference to the text, four or five jokes and a tear, and you've got it. And it is increasingly more in the pulpits of our land. And so it doesn't go away. So here's my thoughts. And um, I, you'll catch some of this, but in much fuller detail, believe me. First of all, what you... Your belief in Scripture is everything. When it comes to biblical exposition, lectio continua, it's everything. I cannot think of any liberal who does or has done lectio continua. I can't. I can't think of anyone that does that. Now, admittedly, some liberal scholars have written helpful critical commentaries. I own them. And they'll apply the principles of, of literary criticism to biblical narratives, and it'll be refreshing, like Robert Alter on the, the narratives, the Genesis narratives. He's a Jew that teaches it at Berkeley. I mean, it's incredible stuff from a literary point of view. It's helpful. Uh, but but uh, the critical theory and the ideologies that are incorporated with feminism, political correctness, produce a kind of butcher block homiletics. It only comes from those with a high inerrantist view of Scripture. Those who do exposition share Jesus' view of the Word. Jesus' view. We're going to talk about Jesus and the Word in a moment. Here's Jesus. Matthew 5.18 After giving the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount Until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything. 
So, you've got to believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. And you really have to believe it. Now, and this is what we touch to, but I'll develop a little fuller. While a high view of Holy Scripture is essential to biblical exposition, it is not enough by itself. You can have a high view. You can believe that it is wholly inerrant, but that's not enough. Because you have to wholeheartedly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency for all of life. And they need to embrace the grand expressions about the sufficiency of the Old Testament. Now, uh, just so you'll see it, turn to Deuteronomy 32, and then we're going to move on to some other texts in the Old Testament. And I, I'll keep us moving, so don't, don't think I'm going to bog us down. I'll be talking as fast as I can. Um, Deuteronomy 32 I got to find it here. Um, yeah. The context, if you if you look at it, as I mentioned this morning, is that Moses has uh, it's getting near the end. Uh, Deut- Deuteronomy thirty-one. Joshua is. They find out he's going to succeed Moses. He's commissioned, and then you notice in. 31, I'm talking about chapter 31, verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that there it may be there for a witness against you. And then you see the song of Moses begins in in chapter 32. And he courses all the way through the song of Moses, incredible song. He finishes the song, and in 44 through 47, we read, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, and he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. That's an incredible statement. It's your very life. And that informed all of the Old Testament so that, uh, uh, as I mentioned, you have the Shema, and you have the command to wear it as frontlets, put it on your doorposts. Uh, Psalm 19, this, that your life, you take the opening uh, verses of Psalm 19. I think it's verses uh, right up to verse 11 or 7. And you have this 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 massive view of the Word of God. Yeah, seven, uh, after he talks about God revealing himself in nature, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is your servant warned, and keeping there is great reward. And so you have it celebrated uh, there. Psalm 1, blessed uh, is the man who does, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but in his law, his word, he meditates day and night. Then you go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 If you don't know what it is, it's 172 verses long. It's an acrostic poem, which takes the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Tau, and it has an exposition on God's Word. Now, what's the overall thrust of that is the utter sufficiency of God's Word, that God's Word covers everything from A to Z. I mean, that's what you've got in Psalm 119. 
Then go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. And in Isaiah 66, and I'll just, just pick it up. You can read the whole thing, but he says in the last half of verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then he goes on in the context of there. He says, basically, if you don't obey his word, don't tremble at his word and obey his word. You notice down in verse 5, it says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. But in between, he says, if you don't, that if you don't tremble his word, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He said, all of your offerings are vain. Uh, He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Frankincense is like one who blesses an idol, apart from this massive esteem and obedience to God's word. So in the Old Testament, I mean, Moses set the example. It is your life. And then, as we said... As the, as the preacher is a preacher of the new covenant initiated by Jesus, you have to model Jesus' dependence on Scripture. Jesus' mind compassed the full range of Scripture the old covenant was saturated. I want you to think about this. This is very, very, very important. <clears throat> R.T. France so you know who the commentator is, his doctoral thesis uh, was on Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's become a book published by Regent. In Appendix C, it has an incredible array of Jesus' quotations and allusions from the Old Testament that cover everything from Adam and Eve to Moses to David to Psalm to Jonah and so on. That, That Jesus was just full of the Bible. And more, here it is, Jesus lived in full submission to the Scriptures that he knew like no other one. Absolute submission. Uh, Adolf Schlatter comments, Jesus saw his entire life calling in Scripture. You hear that? It was not marginal, but absolutely central to his life. His whole will was consumed with this, to do what each commandment commanded. And then, says Schlatter, here is the one man, the first in history, who not only knew the word, but did it. That's our Lord. And correspondingly, he employed the Scriptures as the final authority in his teaching as evidence in his repeated challenges to detractors when he would say, speaking of the Old Testament, have you not read? Have you never read? What did Moses command you? And if you take all of that and then his illusions, illusions are not where there's an exact quotation, but there's a word or a phrase or reference to a thought. You have the idea. And John Wynnum writes, The Sermon on the Mount, for instance, has few explicit quotations, but it is so replete with Old Testament language and ideas that it is impossible to say what may have been conscious illusion and what was not. In many passages, there's simply no way to distinguish between Jesus' conscious illusion, the Old Testament, and his normal, habitual use of Old Testament words and thought forms. He says the Holy Scriptures penetrated the warp and woof of Christ's mind. He concludes the total impression that these and many other allusions in the Gospels give us is that the mind of Christ was saturated with the Old Testament. Is that something? So Jesus, the man par excellence, the ultimate son of David, did indeed meditate on the word day and night. He lived it out. And as a preteen, so he's talking about 13 years old or 12 or 13, Jesus' knowledge of the Scriptures astounded the teachers of law. Luke 2.47. And Jesus, when he began his ministry and being tempted by Satan, his encyclopedic 
knowledge of the word enabled him to defeat the tempter with three deft quotations. You can read that in Luke 4, 1 to 13 and the quotations. And as I mentioned this morning, first of all, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture in his hour of temptation. Is that right? And his summary response to the tempter stands like a book into Moses' declaration, the Scriptures are your life, for Jesus insisted they are the soul's food. Matthew 4, 4, especially in Luke 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds the mouth of God. So, the scriptures are a very life to Moses, very food to Jesus, the first and second Moses, so that the a fortiori force of this ought to come down on any of us who teach the word with incredible power, cosmic weight. If that's the way it was the master, how much more us? Now, such passionate conviction informed all apostolic preaching and preachers. You know the text, 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, speaking primarily of Old Testament Scripture and then the New Testament that existed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then also in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And that rightly handling the word of truth has the, has the uh, word orthos in it, straight, orthodox, uh, I, this is this is how I love to say it. Right in the hand of the word of truth, who gets it straight and gives it straight. So, sufficiency. You really believe it's sufficient. And then, well, let, let me just introduce it. There's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan has his warrior heroes, Mr. Greatheart and Mr. Valiant for Truth, converse during a respite after a battle in Pilgrim's Progress. And the two spiritual warriors, still sweating and breathing heavily, sit down to catch their breath. Now, if I want to make this very, kind of give you a contemporary kind of warrior chic for it, imagine the Lord of the Rings at Aragorn and Boromir sitting down. They've got their black arrows in their quiver, and they've got their swords out, and they're sitting down in a respite for battle, a couple of guys that are battling the forces of evil, you know. I like, that's, that's how I like to kind of imagine it. And after a moment, Mr. Greatheart gestures approvingly to Mr. Valiant for truth and says, Thou hast worthily behaved thyself. Let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him. And uh, when uh, Mr. Valiant for truth had taken it in his hand, he looked thereon and said, Ha! A right Jerusalem blade. Then said Mr. Valiant for truth, it is so. Let a man hold one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the unbridled potency of God's word. He's making a very uh, 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 literary uh, application of Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account that God's word will cleave through the hard-shelled souls of humanity like a hot knife through butter. It can cut through the hardest of hearts. Why? Because it cut through your heart and it cut through my heart. And that was a hard heart. So I want to say there will be no exposition, no lectio continua, no preaching through the Gospel of John, no preaching of the book of Romans with faithfulness apart from an exalted view of Scripture, and that exposition will only flourish when the preacher believes the Scripture is, you want to write something down, holy and errant, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Holy and errant. That was the first part of it. 
totally sufficient and massively potent. Holy and errant, totally sufficient, massively potent. And if you believe this, you'll count it's nothing less than expository preaching of the Word because what you believe about God's Word is everything in the matter of preaching. Now, assuming broadly that the evangelical enterprise agrees with what I've said, and in my time, it led the charge for an awesome view of Scripture in many quarters, won the battle for the Bible. And I think of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy as, a, as kind of a baseline, if, if we hold to that then a disconcerting question arises. Why the increasing instances of disexposition in so many Bible-believing pulpits? Now, you'll, you'll see how I think about this. I think one possibility is that some Bible-wielding preachers, I mean, they carry the Bible under their arms, they clutch it to their chest, they hold it like this, do not really believe in the sufficiency and potency of the word. They got it like this. Hold it like Billy Graham. But they don't really believe it. And you'll see my thinking on this. They may think that they believe it, but they really do not believe what they suppose they believe. They need to believe what they believe, not just believe that they believe it. And I think that's the part of the problem. I'll tell you why. You're raised in a church like this. Uh, you get saved. Man, you are, uh, you, you're stunned by the Word of God as it's preached. Uh, you love the Word of God, and you feel called to minister and preach. You feel called maybe to go to seminary. And because you're in a cultural, in a subculture that is very congenial, and assumes that you believe this, you give a mindless assent to Scripture, that it's the Word of God. And it's not that you don't believe it's the Word of God, it's that you don't believe it with all your heart. See what I'm saying? Because you've acceded to a cultural expectation. No, it's the Word of God. The only way I can maybe make it really come home is that... uh, a lot of us have had our children pray to receive Christ, invite Jesus in their hearts. I want to put it when they're five, six years old at bedtime, sitting on their parents' knee and so on. And, 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 and that's a wonderful thing. And, and basically, I, as I've thought about it over the years, they, they're not in a state of disbelieving. They're in a state of believing. But then... They go to a junior high camp. It hasn't really made any difference in their life that you can see. And they're like 12, 13 years old. And all of a sudden, they are regenerated, you know. And uh, Jesus is not, they don't just believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus with all their heart. Their lives have been changed. And I think that there's not a a small group, but a, a major group of evangelicals that need to invite the Bible into their heart. It's got to go from here to here, where you really do believe what you believe, not just believe that you believe it, but believe it with all your heart. And I don't think that it's a, it's hypocrisy out there. I don't think people are disingenuous. I just don't think they believe what they think they believe. Because if they did, they would count as nothing but the preaching of the Word. And then another is that a possibility of evangelicals not preaching the word is they, they believe, they do not believe the bare word of God will connect. Uh, they know that uh, their people will connect with interdirected subjective experience and, they, and their people find reason, discourse, challenging. And and the reason I say that is that this is postmodern culture. Postmodern culture, despite the hard sciences, despite the logic of it, don't want to hear reason discourse. The thing that 
that connects is an interdirected story. For instance, I can be preaching and people are kind of moving around in their pews, it's noise in their pews, and all I have to do is say, now folks, let me tell you how I've been feeling. And all of a sudden, it gets quiet. Uh, people stop coughing. They stop moving in the pews. The babies get quiet. They want to know how the pastor <laughs> feels too. And I'll tell you how to get them really quiet is to tell them about my dog. I, I, uh, I'm a lover of golden retrievers. I've had a succession of golden retrievers. And uh, I once had a dog named Sunday. He was a big brute of a golden retriever. He was a red golden retriever. And his, his, uh, his, his butt was wide enough I could put a cup of coffee on it, and he would stay there. I, I love this dog. I jog with his dog. I swam with his dog. And I, I took him out uh, for his uh, customary run, get in the car, and he couldn't hop in the car. And uh, I took him to the vet, and you know what he had? He had a raging case of leukemia, and I had to put him down. I can remember walking out of that office with his collar. You guys know what I'm talking about. I can tell that in such a way that I can have people weeping. And when I get done with the sermon, I can have certain people who come to me and say, Pastor, that is the most wonderful sermon that you ever preached, and it was about my dog. That's a very seductive thing. Because then you begin to, people begin to tell you these things when they hear interdirected stories, hear some really funny things, and it's tagged to Scripture, and it makes them feel good. And so you start doing that week after week after week because you want people to say at the door, Pastor, that was the most wonderful sermon I've ever heard. You see how seductive that is? And so you start doing Saturday night specials, getting things off the Internet that will entertain your people and uh, not doing the hard work of preaching the Word. And then let me give you another reason why I think disexposition has been increasingly a driver's seat. And that is, and this comes out of theological study, the possibility that, that the preachers have been told about the impossibility of bringing the two horizons together, the pastness of the past. The New Testament is 2,000 years old. The, the uh, Old Testament goes back another millennium. And they lose their hermeneutical nerve. People just can't. I mean, this is an old document. But they forget, among other things, that God is the author of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, and he had a future audience in mind when he authored the Scripture. Scott Hafeman, um, uh, New Testament commentator, scholar par excellence, says the very fact that God has chosen to reveal himself in a space and time-bound collection of writings, speaking of the Bible, means that cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, and cross-temporal communication is possible. And I've given all these reasons for disexposition. The very common one, a prosaic one, that many Bible-believing preachers simply believe that exposition is too much work and it doesn't have a payoff. You know, doing that kind of work. When I, I, I struggled through Greek with a guy in seminary, there was four or five of us in Robert Thomas's class. He nearly killed us with his, you know, and just trying to survive Thomas's class to learn Greek. And I saw this guy, oh, seven or eight years out of seminary, unnamed, and he said, uh, how, Do you use your Greek? I said, Yeah, I use it all the time. I use it every week. And he said, I don't. He said, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Well, I can tell you he preaches bromides today, too. Because those who commit their lives to expositing a text will only be those who believe the Scripture is wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. You're probably thinking, he's wearing me out. i got more to say. The other, next one is just as big. Let me introduce it this way. 
I used to uh, hear people say, and I, it's still said quite often, they'll be, they'll be assessing the church situation. Let's say it's Omaha. It could be this town. It could be any town in America. And there'll be a charismatic church over here, and they'll say what they've got the Spirit, they've got the Spirit, but they need more of the Word. Then there'll be a church over here, uh, a Bible church, a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, and they'll say, They've got the word, but what they need is more of the spirit. And I, I used to go, oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds logical. It makes sense. But you know what goes off now? A big alarm goes off. A knot. Why? Because the word and the spirit are inseparable. If you want the spirit, you have to have the word. And if you want the word to work, then preach the word so the spirit will work. And there was a festschrift done in 1995 to honor the British preacher R.C. Lucas in which John Woodhouse makes a compelling argument for the exposition based on the expository preaching based on the inseparableness of the word of God and the spirit of God. And here's, here's how he makes the argument. He notes that the Hebrew ruach and the Greek pneuma can mean wind or breath or spirit. Ruach or pneuma can mean any of those three things. And in many biblical texts, the Spirit of God can well be translated the breath of God. And he says, so that in biblical thought, the Spirit of God is as closely connected to the Word of God as breath is connected to speech. That's not just him. Listen to J.I. Packer. And this is from uh, Is Knowing God, page 67. If you want to look it up, God's word and God's spirit are parallel figures. God's word is his almighty speech. God's spirit is his almighty breath, says J.I. Packer. And that connection begins in the opening words of the Bible. Now, you know the opening words. Let me just quote them to you out of Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. And darkness is over the face of the deep. And the Spirit, uh, read breath or ruach of God, was hovering over the waters. And then God said, his speech, let there be light. The dynamic question between breath and spirit and speech, God said, is often missed. But the psalmist didn't miss it. Psalm 33, referring to Genesis 1, 1 through 3, said this, John, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord with heavens made, their starry host by the breath, the ruach, of his mouth. And uh, without, you know, going laboring it, if you want to really see it clear, look at Isaiah 61.1, where the spirit, ruach, breath of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord anointed me to preach. There it is, the good news to the poor. Jesus quoted it. In Luke 4.18, the beginning of his ministry. So Woodhouse comments, the logic is that where the word of God is, there the spirit or breath of God is also, for one's word cannot be separated from one's spirit. And this inseparable connection between word and spirit, that they can't be separated, flows right in the New Testament, where Jesus says, John 3.34, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit, capital S, without limit. And again, Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, it's a small s in the ESV because they want to be careful about it. That's John 6, 63. But here's what Carson says. They are products of the life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then... Uh, we quoted it, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. And Woodhouse concludes, precisely for this reason, Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. It is in the Word that God Himself speaks today. Therefore, the surest way to recover the living Word of God is to recover preaching that truly expounds the Scriptures. When the Word of God is expounded, there the Spirit speaks. Exposition looses the manifold work of the Spirit. 
Spirit and word are inseparable. If you don't have the word, you don't have the spirit. Pretty strong. If you want the Holy Spirit to work in your congregation, you've got to preach the word. And uh, lest I wear you out further, let me give another main point. We ought to be doing biblical exposition and not disexposition because apostolic preaching was expositional. Uh, one of the landmark texts in defining the major works of the preacher is in 1 Timothy 4, uh, where Paul gives this charge to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching and teaching. The order is, read the Word, preach the Word. Just as simple as can be. That, that came right out of the synagogue into the church they adopted this custom, but uh, the, the early church also had two readings. Did you know that? They read the Old Testament, then they read the New Testament, and then they preached. The beauty of that is you demonstrate the continuity between the Old and New Testaments, and that's the way it was in the first century. Justin Martyr wrote, and this is just the end of the first century, this is what happens on the Lord's Day. On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. Now, they didn't have all the New Testament, but they read as much as they had, and then the writing of the prophets, as long as time permits, speaking of the Old Testament. Then, when the reader had finished, the president speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. That's what had been read out of Scripture. So the overall effect of this reading was the radical continuity between the Old and the New Testament, and it meant the authority in preaching was secondary to and derived from the Scripture that had been read. And according to Paul's directives here in 1 Timothy 4, the reading of Scripture is to be followed by Timothy's attention to preaching, that's exhortation, and to teaching, doctrinal instruction, for those that have a theological education, to paraklesis and to doskaleia, exhortation and teaching. So you come to the inescapable conclusion, and this is what John Stott says, who I think is the, the dean of expositors. Stott says this in his commentary uh, on 1 Timothy 4. It was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage that had been read. Biblical exposition was the apostolic norm. Therefore, any other kind of preaching is aberration from the apostolic practice. That, that really does sound the alarm to a lot of the foolishness that's going on today. Okay, I'm getting close to the end. Lastly, we ought to be doing exposition because Reformation preaching was expositional. Now, we stand in the history of the Reformation. We stand on the shoulders of the Reformers when they brought the pulpit back to the center of the church and put the altar over to the side, right? And not only uh, was it expositional, but it, it, it brought a revival through exposition. And uh, just, you know, Martin Luther's exegetical angst over first. Uh, Romans 117 where he's bounding, pounding his hard Germanic head on Erasmus Greek text of Romans 117 until it opens you know he sees paradise open he understands the just will live by faith he understands imputed righteousness what happens 50 volumes of preaching by Luther now I have to say it's idiosyncratic it's a bunch of Pope bashing and all that sort of stuff but he's preaching the word. And uh, Luther said at one time, he says um, uh, that uh, the word is preached, God speaks. And he says, yes, I hear the sermon, but who's speaking, says Luther? The minister? No, indeed. You do not hear the minister. True, the voice is his, but God is speaking the word which he preaches or speaks. And... Uh, I'll just, I'll just say this about John Calvin. When John Calvin was preaching on 
Exodus 24, which is uh, the inauguration of the law where they offer douse people with blood. Remember that? And uh, they douse the Torah with blood and douse the altar with blood. He said that when you take the new covenant, Jesus raises the cup of the new covenant referring to the blood offered in Exodus 24. He said, he said, for this reason, Christ in the Holy Supper com- commands his blood as a seal of the new covenant. Nay, whenever we take the sacred book in our hands, the blood of Christ ought to occur to our minds. He doesn't say it is the blood of Christ. He says, as if the whole of the sacred instruction, the whole New Testament was written therewith in blood. And that is it dominated Calvin's life. He referred, referred all the scriptures as if they were pinned in a scarlet his blood. And just, just quickly, you may know this. Calvin lived it out, giving his life to full exposition, Lectio Continua, his term. According to T.H.L. Parker, translator and biographer, on Sunday he took always the New Testament, except a few psalms on Sunday afternoon. During the week it was always the Old Testament. It took five years to complete the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on Thessalonians, 186 on Corinthians, 86 on the pastorals, 43 on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians. He spent five years in his harmony of the Gospels, and that was just his Sunday morning work. During the weekdays in those five years, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 in Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 on Genesis, all because of what Calvin believed about Scripture. He believed the whole of Scripture was the Word of God and must be mined for exposition. I'm quoting Calvin. We must not pick and cull the scriptures to please our fancy, but must receive the whole without exception. And I just want to say to you, and it's a testimony you pastor and other pastors in here, as you preach like you continue, you're always come up to text where you go, what am I going to do with that? You know, I wouldn't preach it if, I, if it wasn't the next thing. But then you preach it and it unfolds and your mind is absolutely blown by what you learn. That's one of the great things about expository preaching. And, uh, oh, I could go on. But let me say, for these substantial reasons, scriptural exposition must be week in and week out diet of the church. The scripture's own testimony about itself, that it is holy and errant, massively potent, excuse me, Holy, inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. I'm getting a little tired. That in the preaching of the Word, the work of the Spirit and the Word are inseparable. Where the Word is preached, there the Spirit preached. Thirdly, because apostolic preaching was expositional. And fourthly, the Reformation preaching, and thus the Protestant tradition was fed on exposition. Calvin's volumes are all Lectio Continua. For that reason... Biblical exposition must be the regular diet of the church. I've sometimes preached topical sermons. This one's a godly man. It was a series like that. Set apart to save, but all the rest of my work was that. And I concur with David Bass, and this is an in-your-face thing. The nature of preaching is plainly indicated. There are not, strictly speaking, several kinds of preaching, topical, expository, textual, or many kinds of sermons, doctrinal, lectionary, life situation, or relational, there is only one, expositional. The only kind of preaching worthy of the name is that in which the truth of the Scriptures explained and applied to the lives of hearers. The task of preaching is clearly defined. The single most important thing the preacher must say to himself each week as he contemplates the sermon lying in front of him is, what am I supposed to be doing? And the single most specific answer is he must repeat is, I'm supposed to explain and apply the Scripture. What we who preach need most of all is a commitment to the biblical text. We must not be afraid of the text as if it might spoil our sermon. Let us study it until we can understand and preach what it says instead of shrinking from it because it doesn't say what we want it to say or says more than we want it to say. Let us preach the text, not the idea that brought us to the text. So, there's my argument. Now, I've got about ten minutes on the pluses of biblical exposition, which is a lot of fun, but 
you're probably not prepared for any fun. So I'll, I'll stop with that. But uh, uh, I've kind of delivered myself of this. So, you know, it's only life and death, that's all. <laughs> I really do mean that. If, if, you don't, if, if the word isn't preached, then the evangelical community is going to lose its mind. And if it loses its mind, it's going to burn off and be gone in a vapor in a generation or two. It's only life and death. It's only the gospel. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, you know, rebuke, all the rest. Do the work of an evangelist. But it says preach the word. Keruksan tan lagan. That is the command of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we need to do. Amen.